Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, this is Obscure, Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black. Coming at you live, you may have noticed there's no music, there's no music this episode to kick us off. And that's because this episode is basically being recorded live to tape for reasons that I will explain. Uh, I have been away. I was away on a little trip. It was extended for unanticipated reasons, which set back the recording of this episode right until this very minute when I have rejoined the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, and picked up my treasured dog-eared copy of the great American novel Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte, and rather than delay the episode, I thought, well, fuck it, we'll just go live, as the great Bill O'Reilly once decreed. Fuck it, we'll do it live. And so that's what's happening on this very special episode of obscure. So my travels took me to New York City last week to do uh, an episode of a television show, which I cannot name, but it is Inside Amy Schumer. And I did a sketch on that. And it's supposed to be two days of work. But what happened was I arrived on a Thursday to shoot on Friday, and then I was going to stay over the weekend and then shoot on Monday. But then the DP, the director of photographer, for those of you not in the know, contracted COVID, and they had to shut down the whole set, which meant that they had to take Friday's shoot and move it to the following Thursday. So that meant that I was going to be stuck in the New York area for some extra days. Now, you may think to yourself, well, Michael, that, uh, what, what, would you, what could you possibly do with yourself stuck there in metropolitan New York City with nothing to do for days and days on end? Well, if you're me, what you do is you call up your friend Kim, uh, who lives uh, right near Foxwoods Casino, and you say, hey, Kim, I'm coming, and I'm going to play poker uh, at your, at, right, I'm going to play poker with you at the Foxwoods for a couple of days. And, and I did that, and then I came and shot, you know, my first day. And then I had two more days to kill, so I rented a car and I went to Philadelphia. Outside of Philadelphia, there's a place called Parks Casino. I played more poker for two more days after that. And then came back and 
shot my second day and flew back today, arrived back in sultry Savannah, oh, probably not an hour ago, and thought, I got to get an episode out. Today's the day. Today's the release day. Today's Friday when you release episodes, but there cannot be any production because poor Robin, poor dear sweet Robin will not have time to do a thing, you know, because I just want to get it up and I want to get it out. Hence, we're recording it live. Live, I say. Very exciting. The first live episode of Obscure. And you'll notice that the difference between when I do it live and when you hear it is really fairly minimal. There's very little editing that goes on. You know, I just open my mouth and words fall out. And then Robin, you know, uh, 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 slides things and adjusts things and puts on some music and makes the whole thing real purdy-like and ties it up in a bow and presents it to you, the wonderful listening audience. Well, you won't have that, you know. all You're just going to have to contend yourself with my deep, rich, honeyed baritone. Mm, ah, what a wonderful baritone. So it was a good time. It was a good time to be in New York. Well, really, it was just a good time playing poker because that's really what it was. And yeah, I did comedy and whatever, but really I was playing poker. And that's what I like to do more than anything else. You know, just sit there quietly, stare at cards and take people's money. Then you may say, well, Michael, surely you didn't win very much money playing poker with all those sharks up at Foxwoods and all those sharks over at the Parks Casino just outside of Pennsylvania in uh, Ben Salem, Pennsylvania. And, I, and, you know, a gentleman never kisses and tells, but I want a shitload of money. nothing better than coming home with your pockets stuffed with $100 bills. I'll tell you that right now. If you're ever on the road, you ever find yourself on the road, best way to return is with your pockets stuffed with $100 bills. Feels tremendous. I'll tell you that right now. So we're back to the book. We're back in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. We're back with poor Catherine and poor Heathcliff and Nellie, who's telling the story and slumbering Hareton. And uh, all the troubles, all the troubles there on the moors. Catherine has just confessed to Nellie that while she believes that she should marry Edgar Linton, and she gives all the reasons why she should, her forehead and her breast say otherwise. In whichever place the soul lives, I'm convinced I'm wrong, she says to Nellie. She says she cannot marry Heathcliff, even though that is what she wants. It would degrade me to marry him now. So she shall never know how I love him because he's more myself than I am. Whatever our souls are made of, his and mine are the same. And Linton's is as different as a moonbeam from lightning or frost from fire. That's what she says to Nellie, unbeknownst to her, however. Heathcliff has heard the first part of that little speech. Heathcliff has heard her say, it would degrade me to marry Heathcliff. Nellie says, he had listened till he had heard Catherine say it would degrade her to marry him. And then he stayed to hear no farther. And that is where we left it off last time. So... Let us recommence with Wuthering Heights, Chapter 
nine. <clears throat> I have to clear my throat. That's the kind of thing that Robin would probably take out, you know? Got to clear the honeyed baritone. <clears throat> I've been very congested lately. I thought I had COVID. I thought, oh dear, I have COVID right before I was about to leave. And just allergies. That's all it was. Congestion and allergies. All right. So Heathcliff has just slunk out of the room. My companion, sitting on the ground, and this is he, she's talking about Catherine now, was prevented by the back of the settle from remarking his presence or departure. But I started and bade her hush. Why? she asked, gazing nervously round. "'Joseph is here,' I answered, catching opportunely the roll of his cartwheels up the road. "'And Heathcliff will come in with him. I'm not sure whether he were not at the door this moment.' So she's covering for Heathcliff, you know. Uh, although it's a little unclear why. I mean, look, it just happened, but it seems to me that she knows that Heathcliff heard her say that it would degrade her to marry him, but she also knows that Heathcliff did not hear her say that our souls are made of the same stuff. You know, so Nellie has some information that Heathcliff does not have. Oh, he couldn't overhear me at the door, said she. Give me Hareton while you get the supper, and when it is ready, ask me to sup with you. I want to cheat my uncomfortable conscience and be convinced that Heathcliff has no notion of these things. He has not, has he? He does not know what being in love is. I see no reason that he should not know, as well as you, I returned. And if you are his choice, he'll be the most unfortunate creature that ever was born. As soon as you become Mrs. Linton, he loses friend and love and all. Have you considered how you'll bear the separation and how he'll bear to be quite deserted in the world because Miss Catherine... He quite deserted. We separated, she exclaimed, with an accent of indignation. Who is to separate us, pray? They'll meet the fate of Milo. Not as long as I live, Ellen, for no... Well, I'm not... Wait, who's Milo? They'll meet the fate of Milo. Not as long as I live, Ellen, for no mortal creature. Every linen on the face of the earth might melt into nothing before I could consent to forsake Heathcliff. Oh, that's not what I intend. That's not what I mean. I shouldn't be Mrs. Linton were such a price demanded. He'll be as much to me as he has been all his lifetime. Edgar must shake off his antipathy and tolerate him at least. He will, when he learns my true feeling towards him. Yes, though that's generally the way it works between men, is when, when your betrothed learns how much you love another dude, generally they shake off their antipathy towards the other guy. They're generally like, oh, well, you didn't explain to me how much you love him. Now, well, now, that, now that I understand that, well, of course, hang out with him all you want. It's fine by me. Hang out with the handsome, dark, brooding Heathcliff as much as you want to do, my wifey. I'm fine with that. Um, now, look, this is, let's be honest with ourselves. You know, these are not enlightened times. And Catherine is not fully enlightened herself. She wants to have her cake and she wants to eat it too. She wants to be with Heathcliff in every way but one. And she wants that too. And she just thinks, well, I'll just explain to Edgar that I love him and he'll be cool with it. You know, despite the fact that Edgar already hates Heathcliff. I dare say he won't be cool with it. He will when he learns my true feeling towards him. 
Nelly, I see now you think me a selfish wretch, but did it never strike you that if Heathcliff and I married, we should be beggars? Whereas if I marry Linton, I can aid Heathcliff to rise and place him out of my brother's power. With your husband's money, Miss Catherine, I asked, you'll find him not so pliable as you calculate upon. And though I'm hardly a judge, I think that's the worst motive you've given yet for being the wife of young Linton. It is not, retorted she, it is the best. The others were the satisfaction of my whims, and for Edgar's sake, too, to satisfy him. This is for the sake of one who comprehends in his person my feelings to Edgar and myself. I cannot express it, but surely you and everybody have a notion that there is, or should be, an existence of yours beyond you. What were the use of my creation if I were entirely contained here? My great miseries in this world have been Heathcliff's miseries, and I watched and felt each from the beginning. My great thought in living is himself. If all else perished, and he remained, I should still continue to be. If all else remained, and he were annihilated, the universe would turn to a mighty stranger. I should not seem a part of it. My love for Linton is like the foliage in the woods— Time will change it, I'm well aware, as winter changes the trees. My love for Heathcliff resembles the eternal rocks beneath, a source of little visible delight, but necessary. Nellie, I am Heathcliff. He's always, always in my mind, not as a pleasure, any more than I am always a pleasure to myself, but as my own being. So don't talk of our separation again. It is impracticable. And she paused and hid her face in the folds of my gown, but I jerked it forcibly away. I was out of patience with her folly. "'If I can make any sense of your nonsense, miss,' I said, "'it only goes to convince me that you are ignorant of the duties you undertake in marrying, or else that you are a wicked, unprincipled girl. But trouble me with no more secrets. I'll not promise to keep them.' "'You'll keep that?' she asked eagerly. "'No, I'll not promise,' I repeated. "'Well,' I mean, so Catherine, far from being, as we suspected, the selfish, ignoble creature that Nellie had portrayed her to be up to this point, is full to the brim with emotion. She is a wellspring of love. She not only loves Heathcliff, she feels them... She feels herself and him to be twinned, to be intertwined, to be uh, as interlaced with each other as two strands of DNA. They are made of the same stuff. She can no longer separate herself from him than she can separate the two helixes of her DNA from themselves. And whatever she has to do, she says, to progress him in the world, she will do. Because it is the same as saying she will progress herself in this world. His survival is her survival. And if that means marrying Edgar Linton, then so be it. But she does not consider, as Nellie is insisting she should consider, that she just be with Heathcliff. You know, come what may. They should just be together. Well, of course they should just be together if that's how she feels. And we suspect Heathcliff feels exactly the same way. 
So what really is the impediment to putting them together? What is it? Money? Is that all it is? It's just money that's not keeping them apart, you know? Having a household? Having a way to move forward in this world? Well, then they'll be beggars together, you know? When you're their age, teenagers are just, just out of teenagehood. You don't care about shit like that. Like, you'll do whatever, you know, you'll, you'll do whatever, whatever love wants you to do. You'll do what love dictates. To hell with the consequences. That's how I remember feeling about it anyway. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't know what's going to happen, but I suspect she's going to make the wrong choice. Because that's just what people do. They make the wrong choices in books or else we wouldn't have books. All right, let's take a little break. And then we'll be back on Obscure. Back now on Obscure. We've got all kinds of trouble happening. There's always trouble happening on Obscure, isn't there? You know, somebody's always in trouble, whether it's Frankenstein or poor Jude or now Catherine and Heathcliff. Everybody's always in trouble. You know, that's what we want, though. That's what we pay our money for. That's why we purchase the ticket. We want to go on that ride. No point in going on a roller coaster if it's just flat. We want there to be hills. We want there to be valleys, twists and turns, corkscrews and loops. That's what we're paying for, friends. So, Catherine has just confessed her the burden of her heart to Nellie, and uh, now she said, "You know, I'm not. Don't prom- Don't make me promise anything else. I mean, I, and I don't intend to keep the promises that you made me keep." She was about to insist when the entrance of Joseph finished our conversation, and Catherine removed her seat to a corner and nursed Hareton while I made the supper. After it was cooked. My fellow servant and I began to quarrel who should carry some to Mr. Hindley, and we didn't settle it till all was nearly cold. Then we came to the agreement that we would let him ask if he wanted any, for we feared particularly to go into his presence when he had been some time alone. Yeah, well, yeah, because the last time, if you recall, he was throwing babies off stairs and waving guns around and threatening to kill people with knives and, you know, just being uh, not very pleasant. So I think it's probably better that they just set the supper aside, and if he wants some, well, then he can have some. And had, isn't that note coming from, from the field? Be this time. What is it about? Gird sect, demanded the old man, looking round for Heathcliff. You know, I have no idea what that means, but let's go to the footnotes, as we do. And how is it that nothing, oh, Heathcliff, has not come in from the field by this time? What is he about? Great, idle, sight. Uh, and how isn't that note coming from the field be this time? What is he about? Got idle sit. <laughs> uh, you know, I think maybe I should have read the, the later edition of this where they clean up his, his, uh, essentially illegible accent. I'll call him, I replied. He's in the barn, I've no doubt. I went and called, but got no answer. On returning, I whispered to Catherine that he had heard a good part of what she said, I was sure, and told how I saw him quit the kitchen just as she complained of her brother's conduct regarding him. She jumped up in a fine fright, flung Hareton onto the settle, and ran to seek for her friend herself, 
not taking leisure to consider why she was so flurried or how her talk would have affected him. So she just throw threw the baby onto the couch and ran. Um, again, they're, they're, they're just not doing a very good job of raising this child. You're not supposed to shake the baby and you're not supposed to throw the baby. I've said that repeatedly over the years and I understand this great American novel takes place before my advice, but I feel like even when it was written, people knew not to throw the baby. You just, it's just, it's not healthy for the child to be thrown about. She was absent such a while that Joseph proposed we should wait no longer. He cunningly conjectured they were staying away in order to avoid hearing his protracted blessing. They were ill enough for only foul manners, he affirmed, and on their behalf he added that night a special prayer to the usual quarter of an hour's supplication before meat and would have tacked another to the end of the grace had not his young mistress broken in upon him with a hurried command that he must run down the road, and wherever Heathcliff had rambled, find and make him re-enter directly. I want to speak to him, and I must before I go upstairs, she said, and the gate is open. He is somewhere out of hearing, for he would not reply, though I shouted at the top of the fold as long as I could. Joseph objected at first. She was too much in earnest, however, to suffer contradiction, and at last... He placed his hat on his head and walked grumbling forth. Meanwhile, Catherine paced up and down the floor, exclaiming, I wonder where he is. I wonder where he can be. What did I say, Nellie? I've forgotten. Was he vexed at my bad humor this afternoon? Dear, tell me what I've said to grieve him. I do wish he'd come. I do wish he would. What a noise for nothing, I cried, though rather uneasy myself. What a trifle scares you. It's surely no great cause of alarm that Heathcliff should take a moonlight saunter on the moors, or even lie too sulky to speak to us in the hayloft. I'll engage he's lurking there, see if I don't ferret him out. I departed to renew my search. Its result was disappointment, and Joseph's quest ended in the same. Yon lad gets war on war. Again, the bad kid gets worse and worse. Observed he on re-entering. He's left the yard to full swing, and Mrs. Pony has trodden down two rigs of corn, a plodded through right or to the other meadow. So the, he left the gate open, and the, and the pony ran out. Ha, some diver to maestro will play till devil to morn. And uh, uh, they'll, they'll uh, there's something, and there's going to be trouble in the morning, and uh, his patience sits in with such careless, awful creatures. His patience itself with such careless, awful creatures. Patience itself he is, but he'll not be soulless. <laughs> I don't even want to read. I don't even care what he's saying. Oh, God damn it. All right. Uh, that lad gets worse and worse. He's left the gate at full swing, and Mrs. Pony's trodden down two ridges of rows of corn and trampled right through into the meadow. However, the master will play the devil tomorrow, and he'll do well to do so. He's patience himself with such careless, useless creatures, but he'll not be so always. You'll see all of you. You mustn't drive him out of his head for nothing. So, you know, <clears throat> Hindley's going to be mad. All right, that's what he's saying. Have you found Heathcliff, you ass, interrupted Catherine. Have you been looking for him as I ordered? Oh, should more liquor look for the horse, he replied. It ought to be more sense. But, oh, how can look for another horse, nor man, all fig, <laughs> Fuck. Why is Joseph in this book? 
I mean, there's no point in me even reading what he says. I should more likely rather look for the horse. It would make more sense. But I can look for neither horse nor man on a night like this as black as a chimney. And Heathcliff's not a fella to come to my whistle. Perhaps he'll be less hard of hearing with you. With ye. It was a very dark evening for summer. The clouds appeared inclined to thunder. And I said we had better all sit down. The approaching rain would be certain to bring him home without further trouble. However, Catherine would not be persuaded into tranquility. She kept wandering to and fro, from the gate to the door, in a state of agitation which permitted no repose, and at length took up a permanent position on one side of the wall, near the road, where, heedless of my expostulations and the growling thunder and the great drops that began to plash around her, she remained, calling at intervals, and then listening, and then crying outright. She beat Hareton or any child at a good, passionate fit of crying. Oh, I don't think Heathcliff's coming home. Uh, not that night anyway, you know. He's probably found himself in IHOP, open 24 hours, and he's probably just going to sit there and order a cup of coffee and nurse it till dawn and just think about how terrible his life is and probably won't even have a quarter to pay for that coffee. The poor kid, you know, they're going to make him wash the dishes. You know, and clean out the boysenberry syrup containers. Poor kid. About midnight, while we still sat up, the storm came rattling over the heights in full fury. There was a violent wind, as well as thunder, and either one or the other split a tree off at the corner of the building. A huge bough fell across the roof and knocked down a portion of the east chimney stack, sending a clatter of stones and soot into the kitchen fire. We thought a bolt had fallen in the middle of us, and Joseph swung on to his knees, beseeching the Lord to remember the patriarchs Noah and Lot, and, as in former times, spare the righteous, though he smote the ungodly. I felt some sentiment that it must be a judgment on us also. The Jonah, in my mind, was Mr. Earnshaw, and I shook the handle of his den that I might ascertain if he were yet living." He replied audibly enough in a fashion which made my companion vociferously vociferate more clamorous me than before that a wide distinction might be drawn between saints like himself and sinners like his master. But the uproar passed away in twenty minutes, leaving us all unharmed excepting Cathy, who got thoroughly drenched for her obstinacy in refusing to take shelter and standing bonnetless and shawless to catch as much water as she could with her hair and clothes. So, it's getting biblical, folks. The scene is getting biblical. Yes, I mean, all this talk of ghosts and sinners and saints and those who are departed and those who remain, it is all uh, very mythic, is it not. And we know Catherine will be departing from us, perhaps from a cold she contracts this very night. I don't know. But we're, you know, we're kind of getting into the beating, living heart of this book at long last. As we try to divine what 
the good Lord above would have us do, who the good Lord above would have us be, sinner or saint, follower of love, follower of philosophy. What is it we are supposed to do here on this blasted earth while we have time? And, you know, who's to say? So, you know, everybody's in a, everybody's in a dither. Even the skies above rent in uh, with, with, with just the, the heavens pouring, water cascading, everything crumbling around them. Chimneys coming down, boughs falling onto rooftops. Violence has visited Wuthering Heights from the heavens above. And uh, why don't we leave it there? A little bit briefer than maybe normally we do. But again, it's a live episode. You know, you don't have the pretty music to carry you through. You're probably tired of hearing my honeyed baritone. And so we'll leave it there for the moment. I'm going to post this forthwith. And, uh, you know, we'll pick it up again on another, what was that word? Vociferating episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and the great Robin Lynn. Our theme song is by Craig Wedren. We rely on you, the listeners, for support. So please, go to patreon.com slash Black. sign up. There's all kinds of fun stuff. There's goodies. You could join the book club where we get together. We talk about the book that we're reading. Uh, and it's just a fun community. So, you know, head on over to patreon.com slash Black. And I will see you next time. 